Welcome to the Sport and Rights podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. I'm Mary Harvey from the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Thanks for joining us on the Sport and Rights podcast. This year has seen two major impacts in the world of sport. The COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted sport all over the world, and with it come threats to athlete, fan, and worker health and safety. We've also seen an increase in athlete activism, ignited by the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. At the Center for Sport and Human Rights, we've been looking at how both of these events have impacted sport and human rights risks that come with it. We've examined such questions such as, how can sport return to play safely? What of the impact on women's sport? And how can athlete activism and athlete voice, their right to freedom of expression, be accommodated on the field of play? One league in particular, the National Women's Soccer League in the United States, or NWSL, has successfully navigated these challenges in holding its 2020 season, the first professional sports league in the United States to do so, and they did so this past June. At the helm of the NWSL is Commissioner Lisa Baird. Lisa is the former Chief Marketing Officer at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and a former Senior Vice President of Marketing and Licensing for the National Football League. Just five months into her tenure, Commissioner Baird navigated a return to sport during the COVID-19 pandemic, negotiated a landmark broadcast deal, secured new sponsorships, and announced a new expansion team in Los Angeles. I recently sat down with Commissioner Baird and talked to her about her first season and how she's navigated what may have been the choppiest waters ever faced for the NWSL. Commissioner, thank you for being on the Sport and Rights podcast. Um, I'd like to start with how you came to the NWSL. What attracted you to this opportunity? How did, how did that all happen? Um, well, I was approached with the opportunity um, kind of late in the year last year. And as I read about it and did research, I really got more and more intrigued. I'm very familiar with sports, having um, spent, you know, kind of almost the last two decades in various positions um, in professional sports and then with the Olympics. Um, but this one in particular really caught my eye. And as I researched more about it, um, I just thought it would be an exciting time to lead a women's professional soccer league. Well, and you officially took the commissioner's role on March 10th of this year, and quickly the sports world was turned upside down. <laughs> so it really did, right? I mean, we, have you seen anything like this before in sport? I mean, you spent a lot of years like I have in, in sport administration. Have you ever seen anything like this? No. And, you know, it's, I, I, as I said, we I took the job. I was so excited on March 10th. On March 11th, we announced um, really for us a land-breaking media deal with CBS and Twitch. And then on March 12th, we, we pro I promptly shut it down. Um, what was astounding to me just looking at it and and you're you're really not taking it in um is how quickly and decisively the entire sports industry reacted and and i want to say it was almost within a 24 36 hour period where you saw the dominoes fall worldwide and i don't think any other industry responded that quickly yeah, it was, it was, and, and we've seen it, we're seeing it less quickly, 
but in collegiate sports in the U.S., you've seen a bit of a domino, but it's been a lot, I would say, longer than it did with, with pro sports. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, you know, not to advice on it, but I, they have a very, they have a more complex set of agenda items because, you know, their athletes are student athletes. Right. Um, and, and I know that there's a lot of good people there um, really, really trying to do the right thing for um, everybody. And I, I appreciate the complexity. Okay, so two days after you start, you know, you, you shut it down. What did you do next? So how did you go about approaching this? Um, you know, it was interesting because you, you know, the first thing you do is you kind of do um, temporary shut suspensions, which is what we did to, to kind of get your groundings. And you start um, looking for playbook, right? That's, that's what people do. They look for, well, when is this happening before and what happened? And you're at the same time um, looking around for, you know, who can help you um, understand what's going on. And, and the realization, I think, sunk in with everybody in sports. Uh, you know, I wasn't the only one, but there was no playbook. Um, and, you know, a lot of exactly. people, a, a lot of people searched for their, um, their thinking and, and what they've done in sports to guide them through creating their roadmap. And um, I spent, uh, you know, a number of years in tech, the technology industry, um, which is not like sports. And what you learn from there is this very thoughtful, what I call end-to-end solution thinking. You and and for whatever reason, that's what I reverted back to is, you know, when you're dealing with very complicated um, uh, uh, rollouts of complicated solutions across industries and and you know different companies, you kind of create an end-to-end -end solution. And that's what I did. I, I kind of, um, I took it apart and I took all the problems. I said, well, here's this, here's this, here's this. And in order for us to really come up with something that we thought would be safe and doable for us as a league, you kind of had to solve them all, not sequentially, but at the same time to create the right end-to-end -end solution. Okay. So, so t can you un unpack sort of the big moving pieces of of when you say you know you don't you don't solve it sequentially you have to solve it all at once and then that's the end to end solution. So can you unpack f for us what those big pieces were? The the obviously the first is the health and safety angle. That was first. So, okay, what are we dealing with, um, you know, and, and, you know, you kind of, so that was, a, I'm going to be really geeky here, Mary, and use words that aren't ordinary. I, I went to Berkeley. Geeky's fine. Geeky works. Mary, yeah, I'm taking you right back to Berkeley. So there was a work stream that we developed with um, just the science, the data. That was a huge guiding pillar of what we did. How do we do this safely and with health and safety in mind? So we assembled um, a, a kind of a work group of our doctors, um, all of our doctors from the teams. Um, I decided not just to go with the chief medical officer, but involve all our teams so that we had consensus across. Not only did we not have a chief medical officer, but I felt like the diversity of thinking and the ability of us to access a lot of different sports at that level would be the right thing. So that was the, the work um, the work group to develop the, the health and safety protocols was number one. The second group was with the, our players association. 
Um, and, and that was at the, at the, the outset. Um, you know, we involved them immediately at the outset. And it wasn't just for the reasons that, um, you know, we, we needed to, and every league does, because you're dealing with unions and different unions. In our case, we have, um, we have um, our own PA with our own employees and with U.S. Soccer, our federation. Um, we also have the U.S. Women's National Team uh, PA. So we had two, and we had to involve them from the beginning. How are we going to approach this? Where, what are what are the players' um, needs? What are our needs? And um, that was a, a separate one. The third, you know, the third one was um, the tournament and the play, the competition framework itself. I didn't think, based on what I knew at the time, which wasn't much, Mary, you know, that that uh, you know, just going into a regular season was going to work for us. Um, and that's where the idea of the tournament um, came up. And, and, you know, I was looking around kind of thinking, wow, if we have to deal with a complicated solution, imagine what the Olympics is going to have to come up with. And I knew that an international style tournament would allow us to really, um, um, you know, kind of offer something uh, live sports wise to our fans and our teams that, and our players that would be exciting. So there was a competition angle. Then there was a commercial angle. What are we going to do to create the commercial wherewithal to do this? And and then on and on, there were lots of different work streams. You know, what's the uh, media and communications? I created a small work team there because no one knew who we were. We had to really get our story out, um, you know, and then on and on. But we were all doing these sequentially because, you know, if you take medical and safety and what you're learning and then you take the competition you want to do, bubble comes up as a solution. So that's how they intersect with one another. Terrific. So, so let's drill in. I'd like to drill into three of those, if that's okay. Um, so let's talk about health and safety. I mean, one of the things that we did at the center is we were holding COVID calls, um, which was what we called them, um, because things were happening in real time, right? In March, it's crazy. Um, and so we had people from the WHO on talking to us about you know, what's working, what's not, um, to sort of separate out noise and hyperbole from science. <laughs> and it sounds like you were doing the same thing. So, right? So, so tell me about sort of what the interaction, so in, in developing the medical protocol, right, for, and none of us are epidemiologists, right? But in, in developing the medical protocol, what do you feel sort of worked I mean, you've mentioned diversity of, of people, you know, hacking away at the problem. Um, but, but how did you sort of arrive at what the protocol would be and what worked and what didn't work? What did you learn? Well, you know, the, the, the thing that was so confounding about this is, and, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, I was able to work really closely and we are still working with our medical task force with amazing doctors um, who are not only accessing what they know about um, women's soccer, but they're, you know, they serve as doctors for other professional leagues. So we're able to get, you know, what we need um, from other sports leagues, but we had to create it ourselves. And the answer in, in a, in, with um, COVID-19 is you're working on plans to mitigate risk. Mary, nowhere in the world is there a way to say, well, this is how you this is the solution. What you're doing constantly is how do you mitigate risk? How do you mitigate risk? And early on, I will be blunt with you, um, there's no way to say 
you're you're going to have we're going to be able to do this COVID free. All you can do with the protocols is mitigate risk, mitigate risk, mitigate risk. So that was the guiding principle: is how do we do this well? Um, and so I think we at the end of the day we had probably almost ten different protocols that we did. But but what was right um, for us is not right for every other league, right? That was where look we are um, we're smaller. We can do some things that um, and be more flexible and nimble and, and quick that other bigger bigger organizations can't. Um, we also had the confounding challenge um, in the United States where different states um, have different guidelines. So we're paying attention to CDC guidelines, but what quickly became apparent, Mary, and I don't know that anyone outside the U.S. is dealing with this, is that what New York and New Jersey were doing um, is very different from what Illinois was doing, is very different from what Texas is doing. So I was like, okay, we can't right now do this uh, across this. Let's go to, let's go, let's go somewhere. And that's where we started studying where, where would we go? And, and that's where it has to intersect with what kind of competition you're doing. Um, so that was kind of where the data, the science, the reality of what we're dealing with in the U.S., um, the incidents, um, what we could, how we could protect the players. But we were very transparent with all of our players up front that this is a risk mitigation plan. This is not an elimination plan. And we told them how we would handle it. And I think that was really crucial between myself and Brooke and Yael and Becca Roo, um, which is transparency and and uh, transparency up front. And, and those, um, so Yale um, and Becca Roo, um, they are the, the representatives. Yeah. Are the, are Brooke the and Yael are our NWSA PA reps, and each team has their rep. And then um, Becca Roo is the PA rep for the U.S. Women's National Team, who plays in our league. Yep. So that's a good way of putting it. You're, it's really about risk mitigation. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, and I'm going to get a little bit geeky here with the protocols itself, just because I think, so testing, like what are the, I mean, you, you mentioned that decreasing the number of moving parts. So you're going to be in one place. You're going to be in Utah. Um, what other things were part of the overall protocol that, that were really helpful? Well, I think like identifying the like you know one of the key things um, that gave us confidence and I think gave our players confidence was you know looking at really scientific data and explaining them. I've heard this um, I've heard this anecdotally, but I will tell you from experience. I think our players ask the most questions about the medical protocols. They are very educated players and they you know know what questions to ask and. So we, we had doctors on our calls, but like, for example, what tests we were going to use, what was the, the um, serial nature of it? Because, you know, one of the things we learned early on is the only way to mitigate risk the best you can is to do serial testing. That's why all of the leagues have this being done continuously. Then it was understanding when does the test pick it up? What tests you're going to do? What lab are you going to do? Like all of these questions. How do the protocols work in a preseason environment versus in a competition environment? Because women's soccer is a contact sport. That's why, you know, you were able to see um, other people come back a little quicker. Like NASCAR, you know, they deserve a lot of credit, but they're not a contact sport. 
So what we, you know, like even down to one of the things, you know, and learning as we go, like how do you treat a corner kick where you have a gathering of people on the field? You know, what do you do with this? And, And on and on about this. So, you know, without going into it, it was making sure that we were really designing our, um, you know, our protocols. We took learnings from others, but I can't say our protocols are the same as others because we really wanted to define it for our sport, our women, uh, and the bubble in Utah. Okay, terrific. So talk to me a little bit about when you're talking to the player associations. One of the things we, you know, we talk about a lot in at the Center for Sport and Human Rights is stakeholder engagement, right? Nothing about me without me type type attitude. So talk to me about, you know, what was the approach and how did how did the whole dynamic work when you were engaging with the representatives from the two players associations on the protocol for return to play? Well, uh, you look, and you know what, uh, you know, uh, Mary, it was a new relationship for me. So remember, sure. these are uh, Brooke and Yale. You know, I've met, I, I, I met Brooke, and then um, on the on the like literally the uh, the first week I started, and then I, um, you know, we're we're engaged in a very intense. You know, can we get back to can we um, get back to return to play? So it was establishing trust on both parts. Um, it was estra- establishing transparency. We were very honest up front with what we knew, what we didn't know, um, where we thought we were really um, confident in, um, in, in the protocols and the safety and what we were doing. And frankly, we're, we're and honest. You know, this is about risk mitigation. I do not know of any industry where you can promise um, zero results. You can't, you shouldn't, it's not honest. Um, but then there were other aspects that came into play, and it was this series of collaboration and decisions. Um, and we had, you know, weekly, biweekly meetings, um, you know. And it was remember, I'm still a rookie commissioner, um, and you know, I remember, you know, early on, Brooke and Yael saying, you know, they want to hear from you, and doing Zoom calls with 200 players um, on the Zoom call. I don't know of any other commissioner who did that. But, you know, that was something we did to have the communication and have hard questions asked um, early on. And, and, you know, I think it's a personal thing for me, but I, I know it's something for our players. We designed a solution. Again, this end-to-end solution thinking we designed a solution for the moms, right? They have different, they, you know, right up front, we're going to make something for the moms. When you say that, you mean players that are professional players and they're also mothers of young children. That's right. And so we created a solution for them to bring their kids to the games. Um, We created a medical protocol for the kids, Um, you know, all the way down to, you know, where, where are they, you know, where are they living? How do they interact? You know, it was really thought through. Um, But there were other things as well. You know, how are we going to handle insurance? How are we going to handle... Um, player compensation, waves, trades, you know, all in all, and that it required us to have frequent communication, honesty, transparency, and understand each other's goals. And and not that they are always the same, Mary, they're not. They're not always the same. But uh, like I think I've developed the ability um, to talk to Yael and Brooke and, and listen to them and vice versa. 
Sure. Um, this is fascinating. There's so many different ways we could go with this. Um, but, you know, in, in looking at, you know, the, the protocols, we have medical protocols, um, and then we also have mental health considerations. I mean, everybody around the world can relate to the, the, the mental health impact of being isolated. So as you sort of went through this, I kind of want to drill into two things. One is, is how was that taken into consideration, um, if at all? Um, because, again, it's a team sport. People are together. But if you're in a bubble, you're separated. Oh, yeah. Right? So how, how did you sort of what, – what was the thinking around and the discussions that you had about that, and what was your approach? It was – we took – for the bubble, we took a very, very, very conservative approach, Mary. Like, remember, this is about mitigating risk. So we were honest up front about um, what the um, parameters were in the bubble. And uh, look, I'm not taking any credit at all. These players, I think they understood it. They went into it. They lived by the protocols. The results that we had are a tribute to our healthcare partners, but our players above all, because they lived and breathed the protocols. And they were tough, Mary. They were tough. Um, you know, it's, it is draining to be in an environment for 34 days where your uh, movements are pretty um, limited and you're away from your home, um, but they took it on. And um, those are the people that deserve the credit right there, the doctors, the healthcare um, partners, and the players themselves. Sure. Um, so let's talk about... Um... You know, 34 days in a bubble, there may be some players or or maybe, I mean, I can think of players who might be, like I played 150 years ago with Michelle Akers, not to age oh, Michelle, wow. it's more to age me, but she had an autoimmune uh, uh, um, disorder, right? She had uh, Epstein-Barr. Um, she would be, somebody would be at high risk probably for COVID. So d how did you work with, you know, the and accommodate the fact that players may say, you know what, I just can't. I can't return to play. I'm going to sit this season out. Um, there were there was there was absolutely an option to opt out of the tournament. We we didn't you know we didn't make it broad because I think that one of the things, Mary, with this is there's something about solving the problem at hand and not trying to make sweeping. Here's what it is because no one knows exactly where this is going to um, net out. So solve the problem at hand and make sure that you're flexible and you're adapting. So we did, um, we did um, have an opt-out um, uh, valve, if you will, a safety valve for those players. There were some people that did that. There were some people that had, there were a lot of people that had injuries um, that they were, were, were dealing with. That has nothing to do with COVID, um, um, but we did have that. We had very few, though, take us up on it. Um, that, that for that reason, Mary, but we did have that and we provided that, I think because um, we, you know, we, we, we wanted to be honest with um, ourselves in terms of what we were doing. I do think that's really important. Um, and I think our PA thought that was really important, but I think what was more important, Mary, is explaining honestly what you did know and what you didn't know so each player could make that informed decision. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and again, like you say, it's a new relationship. You're, you're walking in. You've got two unions. Um, 
and it's it's not easy. I've I've been in your shoes um, with another league, a different time. Uh, that isn't easy. And then right in the middle of it, you're negotiating COVID nineteen return to play protocols. Oh yeah, that's not easy. <laughs> So I can appreciate that. The Zoom call um, was particularly terrifying twice. <laughs> say know, say I, again? The Zoom call with 200 players, like firing questions at you. Yeah. That was hard. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, these are these are confident, educated women, um, oh, professional athletes. Absolutely. They're going to bring it. No, there's no, <laughs> yeah, this was serious. <laughs> um, so uh, sort of the, the I, I'd like to ask about the competition format. And it's my understanding you basically made it like the Women's World Cup. Is that right? Yeah, I call it an international tournament, Olympic-style tournament. It's similar. And and I the reason we did is, um, you know, compress play, a group play, because we were coming back from preseason, and the group play was kind of an important piece of it for every player and the coaches because they hadn't had uh, a very lengthy um, preseason. They didn't have the regular season. But then the, the knockout elimination round, it, in in a fast period, it, it definitely gets people's adrenaline going. Um, so it's two tournaments in one, really. It's group it really play. It really was. And then you go into knockout, and it's winner take all, basically. It was, and, and I think what was exciting for the fans, for the teams, for the players is well, look, we have a we have powerhouse teams, just like every league, right? You know, North Carolina Courage. Portland Thorns, you know, we also have some up and coming teams um, that have been investing in, in their process. Um, and what was exciting is in the group play, you had North Carolina Courage, you know, an incredible coach, like stacked up team experience, you know, mental and physical discipline. They did the best, um, they had the best results in the group round. And then in the first game of the knockout, here comes Portland Thorns. What was exciting and what was really great for me as the commissioner is that I believe that, um, you know, I'd like to believe, and, and I hope this isn't bragging, but I hope it is that we have one of the best women's um, professional soccer leagues in the world, and frankly, one of the best professional soccer leagues. Um, and uh, you saw the key to that is parity of teams. So in the first round, there goes the Thorns taking out North Carolina. And at the end of the day, we had a winner, the Houston Dash, um, and they took, it, they took it all. They'd never been in a playoff before, um, had just, you know, an incredible story and an incredible run, and they, they took the cup. So I think that was what was super exciting about our, our tournament. So let's just talk a little bit about um... – you know, the results. So the NWSL was the first professional sports league in the United States to return to play um, with with the 2020 Challenge Cup, which is the name of the competition. Um, your opening match drew 572,000 viewers on CBS. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Okay. Um, so impressive. And how many, at the end of the season, um, you know, how many – COVID-19 cases did you end up having? Um, well, with the Challenge Cup, um, we had zero. Um, and we had zero, and I'll say it again, it's because of the extraordinary discipline and focus of the players, the adherence to the protocols, and a, an incredible performance by our medical partners in Utah. The, it's all them. Okay. 
So just a couple of final things before we pivot to athlete activism and Black Lives Matter, because that's also a part of the story of your season this year. Um, you know, what would you, what advice do you have for other leagues in terms of if you had to do this all over again, or, you know, if you had a do-over, what would you do differently um, that you learned uh, from going through this? I, you know what? I, okay, let me tell you the advice part of it. I, and Mary, you got to help me here. I am a rookie commissioner. I'm in my 22nd or 23rd week. So I'm not sure that um, I feel comfortable giving advice to commissioners who've got years of experience ahead of me. And I know there's several sports leagues that are doing really, really well um, with the same, you know, similar protocols. I think what I would say is um, the bubble idea worked for us. It was exactly the right way to start because I think we were looking for, we didn't know what we were working with, but it's, but I think that the, the hard, the hardness of doing that, of being away from home, not being, you know, being in a 34 days, I think that's a learning for me and the PA and even the players is it's a very, very difficult thing to just do your sports around that. It's not, that's the one where, you know, they did it um, and other players are doing it, but it's really hard to sustain. Well, it really is very much like going and playing in Olympic Games or World Cup. You're going to a different country, in this case, a different state, different city. Um, you may, you'll have limited access, in this case, no access to friends and family. Um, and it's for a prolonged period of time. So tough. Yeah. it is tough. It's tough. Um, let's pivot to athlete activism and Black Lives Matter. So, you know, women's soccer in the United States, and I would say, you know, it's also been in different parts of the world, has a history of being um, out front on social issues be it pay equity, social justice. So when, um, you know, when, when George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maude Aubrey, um, when their, their tragic deaths happened, athletes all over the world were expressing solidarity in a variety of different ways. So this happened prior to the start of the Challenge Cup. Tell me about how you approached athlete voice and, and peaceful protest, as it were, or, or messaging. You know, and you can talk about it any way you want in terms of, you know, discussing with players, player association or players themselves. Just talk to me a little bit about how you approach that. Well, I think, you know, we don't have, I think unlike other leagues, um, we have a, we're still relatively young. We're, you know, um, you know, nine years, I think, or eight years. So we're really short. So we don't have, we've been from the beginning of, uh, you know, I call it pretty, supportive league in terms of our players making um supporting their rights to make statements um we we don't have you know decades and hundred and you know even 100 years of history here um which i think is a different complexity for a lot of leagues but we're fairly young we've been consistent in our um our um our philosophy that players should um peaceably and safely do their do their be able to allow to express themselves so when this happened and um i mean you gotta remember this was a enormous uh, huge deal in the united states like in june when this happened i mean it seized the country and i use seized in the way that there was a seizure of this country 
And I know our athletes cared about it. We immediately started talking to the PA about it. As a new commissioner, I reached out. I had a couple of phone calls with um, several of our players on it. And I was mostly listening at that point, um, you know, because I think it just was this, uh, like this grief and this frustration came out very, very quickly and at a high level in the United States. Um, and the PA kind of thought about it and they came back to me with a proposal. And I said, absolutely, absolutely. Let's figure out how to do this. You know, I think you're always like, because you know, you're always in sports, you're always on an incredible deadline to um, make something happen in time. I was a little, I was a little anxious because I was trying to support what they were doing at the same time, pull off a tournament in Utah with safety, you know, so there was a little anxiety on my part, um, but the the spirit and the, the passion of our players they, and their need to express. And, you know, I think what they came up with, which is the moment of silence um, for the 46 seconds, uh, kneeling on the field, um, our, our support of our players during the playing of the anthem, um, and however they wanted to um, uh, show their purpose, you know, I think it just goes to the core philosophy of who we are as a league. We're supportive of our players' right to make a statement. Um, that's so, that's going to continue. So the the players came back to you with a proposal, and and can can you share with me what the proposal was from the players? I, it was exactly what we did, which is, um, you know, um, we we um, gave that we had a moment, uh, forty six seconds of kneeling on the field with silence. We had the we worked with our partner Nike to turn around the Black Lives Matters tees, um, which they wore um, out on the field, and then in, you know in that moment of silence, and and it was really powerful. And I think that um, they knew and they had the courage. Our players had the courage as the first league back. We knew it was going to be consequential for the United States. Okay, we knew it was. And they knew it was, um, but I, I don't think that we we expected at that on that first CBS game to have the incredible supportive response we did from our fans. Seventy percent of our fans said this is exactly the right response. I think that's a high among any league. Our our fans are very much in tune with our players, and they were very supportive. And I think you know one of the most passed around. Um, statements was the joint statement on the first game from the North Carolina Courage and the Portland Thorns in support of it. And that was all the PA and and uh, and the league making enabling it to happen. And the armband that the players then wore through the course of all the games. Okay. Um let's sort of the, the final piece is is what's next for the NWSL. So and what role, if, if you have a thought on sort of athlete rights and human rights play in how you approach your role as commissioner? Well, you know, again, you know, I, I want to um, look, we, I think live sports has a, all, will have a role to play in what's next. And we're on the, we're on the cusp of announcing that very soon, uh, very, very soon. Um, what we're doing will always have the collaboration with our players. We may not always be in the same, um, we may not always be in the same place, um, but I think we understand, respect each other, and we put 
health and safety forward. But I think we're also learning from what we did in Utah and we're gonna take forward something that learns both the good lessons as well as the tough lessons of life in a bubble. Um, but it'll always be done with collaboration with our PA, with um, honesty in terms of what we know, what we don't know. Um, but what we did, what we did learn is, you know, with our teams, with our players, um, with the response that we had with our audience. By the way, the audience wasn't just here in the United States; it was worldwide because Twitch internationally streamed all of our games. Um, you know that that this what these women stand for is about empowerment right that statement of empowerment that statement of we can do it we're um you know without that boy we're doing something really important other than just providing incredible sport we're demonstrating how um our athletes and how empowered they are to make their own decisions to do what they're going to do for their livelihood because this is our livelihood here and to make a difference in people's lives and inspire people is, is working. Um, and I think you'll see us continue to do that. Terrific. Commissioner Lisa Baird, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. And thank you very much. Um, and best of luck with the next season. So the off season uh, and what we have going forward. And I guess we'll stay tuned for uh, the announcement that you mentioned. So that's terrific. Thanks, Mary, and um, look forward to, to continuing to stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening to the Sport and Rights Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast. To find out more about the Center, visit sporthumanrights.org and follow us on Twitter at Sport and Rights.